Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, before we get started, we do need to make sure that we are in fellowship and cleansed of our sins, so it will take a few moments of uh, for silent prayer, so you can make sure you're in fellowship, ready to focus on the study of the Word this evening, and I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that you have worked in human history. You are not a God like the other gods of the empty imaginations of people who are just part of the cosmos. You're not a God who uh, has the flaws and failures of, of human beings. You are a creator God who is the God of history. You have declared the end from the beginning, and you have you are working out your plan and purpose in human history. And so history is a testimony to who you are and what you have done. And as we look back at the Old Testament, we see how you have revealed yourself to the uh, great spiritual leaders of the Old Testament, uh, Adam and Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon. And as we study these people, we study what has been revealed in these books. It is a testimony to your grace, a testimony to your faithfulness, and it, we are to be reminded that uh, you are the same God for us that you were to them. And even though we live in a different dispensation, many of the principles that we see uh, exemplified in these um, narratives, uh, re- are, are the principles are the same for us, and they remind us of your constant faithfulness and your involvement in history. So as we study these things this evening, we pray that you would help us to focus See how the principles apply to our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3, and we're going to back up a little bit to the first verse again. We got into this last week into the first 15 verses, but I want to go back and pick up a couple of things by way of review and point out some things that I did not point out last time, and I think maybe even one of them is a correction. I'm not sure if I mentioned something or not. If I did, it was wrong. I want to just clarify it, so we'll go through this. Now, where we are in in First Kings is the initial part, which is the reign of Solomon that covers the first 11 chapters of First Kings. The first two chapters we have already studied, and these deal with the transition from David to Solomon. So in the first 11 chapters, we see God providing for the transition of the kingship from David to Solomon in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That's always in the background. And it's it's just fascinating to watch this and to see these implications of how God always works within this framework of legality he doesn't have to do that God could do things any way he wanted but he re- he reveals these legal structures and then he operates within them and when we think about this in terms of so many different uh, aspects of of the old testament of the new testament uh, what angels do as witnesses what the terms that are used uh, for sin, in terms of violation of law, transgression, terms that are used to describe salvation, justification, uh, imputation. All of these are forensic terms. That means they're terms borrowed from the courtroom. Forensic isn't just related to um, forensic medicine. Okay, get your head out of CSI. It's for, that's judicial medicine, medicine that is used for a courtroom purpose. Um, forensic doesn't have to do with medicine. It has to do with the courtroom. And so we have this forensic framework to Scripture, which tells us a lot, something about how God has structured the universe. And it ultimately goes back to his character as a God of justice and righteousness. 
and that he rules the universe in his sovereignty according to a perfect standard, which is his own character. His character of righteousness is that absolute standard, and his justice is the consistent application of that standard down through through history. And so from the very inception of history, we have the creation covenant in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. It's modified in Genesis 3, modified again. After the Noahic flood, then we have the Abrahamic covenant and the, uh, the real estate covenant, sometimes called the Palestinian covenant or the land covenant, and then we have the Davidic covenant. So that's the background to show how God is fulfilling that which he has promised and prophesied all within the structure of law, which is a manifestation of his righteousness. So we see that he is, he, he's in the background, as I pointed out in chapter 1 and 2, one of the most interesting things to note is the absence of the mention of God. The absence of the mention of God. He's not mentioned at all. And then when we come to uh, chapter 3, suddenly we have God appearing in the first of four revelations uh, personal revelation where God reveals himself and re- and reveals information to Solomon. And this is the first one of these is in 1 Kings 3, and we'll look at, look at some others. But the, as the first two chapters describe the sovereign work of God uh, bringing Solomon into power. And last time we studied the end of chapter 2 where we see how God establishes Solomon's kingdom. And I just want to go back and note, the, how this, how the chapter ends, the last sentence is, thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And the one who establishes it in the hand of Solomon, as we will see in 1 Kings 3, 7 in Solomon's prayer, is God as a manifestation of his sovereignty. So even though we see man making various volitional choices in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and how to meet the threat of Adonijah's rebellion, how to handle various circumstances, how to handle the conspiracy. Uh, when it's all said and done, God is working behind the scenes. And again, and I know I've said this the last three Bible classes, but each week I go back, I read some different commentaries on First Kings, and I was reading another one uh, today, and again they just seem to suggest that Oh, the Solomon of First Kings 3 and 4 is so different from the Solomon of First Kings 2. He's not this little vindictive, uh, vengeful uh, person bent on uh, carrying out these little vendettas for his father David. And I just say, you know, are they reading the same Bible I'm reading? Are they locating the events of First Kings within the broader framework of the Davidic covenant and the even broader framework of the Mosaic covenant and the uh, even broader framework of the Abrahamic covenant? Of course, the answer is no, and they ought to be. And because, as I pointed out, each of these men that are executed are guilty of capital crimes under the Mosaic law. And as the king, uh, the king has the right to carry out this, this execution. And so uh, we see that God validates and vindicates Solomon in, by virtue of this request that he grants in 1 Kings chapter 3 when Solomon comes to the Lord and all of the terminology that's here reinforces Solomon's spiritual maturity. He loves the Lord. He's humble. He is, uh, he, he recognizes that he has no experience, no insight. He's like a young child in terms of his inexperience. He doesn't know how to conduct the business of state and how to rule God's kingdom. And he is willing to humble himself under the hand of God in order to let God advance him. And God then gives him wisdom. This is not a different Solomon than First Kings chapter 2. This is the the same Solomon as First Kings chapter 2, because there's probably an overlap in these activities. First Kings 3 isn't following specifically on First uh, Kings chapter 2. 
Uh, as I stated last time, we get into chapter 3, we have a sort of a historical summary. Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. And this serves as a topical sentence that summarizes what is going to be covered in subsequent chapters where we'll get into uh, the establishment of the kingdom on wisdom in, uh, t- tonight in chapters 3 and 4, and then in chapters 5 down through about chapter 9, uh, we have the dedication, the building and the dedication of the temple, uh, the building of uh, Solomon's palaces, all of these different things that take place. So chapter 3, verse 1 is a summary looking forward to his the, the development of his kingdom. Then as we uh, get into this section, uh, we recognize that he asked for prayer. And so I've summarized chapter 3 and 4 saying this is where Solomon's wisdom is displayed in his administration and organization. Of course, we could restructure that and say that God's gift of wisdom to Solomon is displayed in his administration and organization, trying to keep God as the ultimate subject in Old Testament narrative. God's the hero of the story. And that's what these are. These are narratives. These are stories. They're historical. They're they're truthful. They're accurate. But God's the hero. And we always try to keep that in mind. I always try to emphasize that as we read the Old Testament. Now, that's this. the wisdom of Solomon is the theme. That's the key idea that organizes uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4. If you uh, look at the first part of chapter 3, 1 through 15, this is where Solomon uh, is God reveals himself to Solomon as, as Solomon requests wisdom. God gives him wisdom. And just skip over 3 and 4 and come to the last paragraph of chapter 4. And the last paragraph of chapter 4 begins in verse 30. Actually, in verse 29, And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. See, this summarizes it. You've got a bracket here. Uh, the beginning introduces the, the request for wisdom, the granting of wisdom, and then the conclusion says God gave him wisdom. And so when we read chapter 3 and 4, you have to read it in light of what idea? Solomon's wisdom. That's what everything in here, because typically when we come to a chapter like chapter 4, where we read this grocery list of officials that are in his administration, they're funny names and they're uh, people we're not familiar with. And if we try to look them up in a Bible dictionary, they're probably not there because this is the only time they're mentioned in the Bible. And so people have a tendency to read that and go, okay, why do I need to know this? And the reason you need to know this is because this this organization that's described in chapter 4 is a massive organization and it all comes from Solomon and so it is a an example of how of his wise leadership as he uh, oversees this huge kingdom now it's sort of been a uh, smaller kingdom under Saul it grew under David but the focus was on war consolidating the kingdom expanding the borders and David did not focus as much on administration and organization and now it's up to Solomon on the basis of wisdom to skillfully organize the affairs of the kingdom and so the general tone of chapter 3 and chapter 4 is positive. It's positive. The writer isn't giving a critical evaluation of these things. He is simply recording what happened. But there's a, there is a generally positive tone. Solomon asks for wisdom. God is impressed, you might say, anthropomorphically or anthropopathically with uh, Solomon's request for wisdom. He's pleased. So he grants that request. That's all very positive. And then you see the examples of that wisdom in the episode with the two uh, two prostitutes, and the episode with his administration and the expansion of the of the kingdom. But if you read carefully, there is an ominous tone that underlies the text. It goes back to Deuteronomy 17. It goes back to 1 Samuel 8, where Moses 
and later Samuel warned the people that if the king becomes too powerful, if he multiplies his horses, if he marries a lot of foreign wives, then he will become a burden, a tax burden upon the, upon the state, and this will weigh heavily on the people, and they will uh, resent his, his leadership. And so this, begin, this, this hint is there. The hint that he marries a foreign wife, he marries uh, the daughter of Pharaoh. The way that he organizes uh, the state, a couple of things in there that are going on, uh, and the fact that he has uh, so many horses and so many chariots and establishes these uh, chariot cities, these fortifications around the country. All of this um, is good, but it has a has an ominous overtone that we need to pay attention to. Okay, as we get into this, we'll see God giving Solomon wisdom in, verse, in chapter 3, 1 through 15, and then the display of Solomon's wisdom uh, in 3.16 down to the end of chapter, uh, chapter 4. Now, after God establishes his throne, we see the initial years summarized in chapters 3 through 4. This is a summary of the first four years. He comes to the throne approximately 970 B.C., and he dedicates the temple in 966. That's chapter, comes down to chapter 9. So this covers the first four years of his kingdom. He's young. He's focused on serving the Lord. He is very positive, and there is nothing negative that is that is stated here. Now, last time, I pointed out that the only sort of hint with a negative overtone is found in verse 2 and at the end of verse 3. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places. Now, at this point, that's not really a violation of the law. The high places are what the Greeks called... Um, the Acropolis. The Acropolis has to be the, it means the high point of the city. And so in the ancient world, people would set the temples to the gods and goddesses on the high point. Why'd they put it on the high point? Well, some people think they started putting it on the highest mountain around because they didn't want the, if the earth was going to be flooded again, they uh, didn't want the temples to the gods destroyed. So that's certainly a possibility, but that tends to run all the way through the ancient Near East, that there's this custom of building these places of sacrifice on the highest point around. And uh, following the uh, loss of the ark and then the various migrations, its, it's return to, to Israel, the ark has, is brought by David into Jerusalem, as we saw in Second Samuel, and the ark is located at the threshing floor of Yeruna the Hittite, which is uh, on the Temple Mount, which First uh, Chronicles informs us is Mount Moriah. But the tabernacle itself is not on Mount Moriah. It's in Gibeon. And so there's this split, and Gibeon becomes the place of sacrifice as well as a place of sacrifice on the Temple Mount, what will be the Temple Mount in, in Jerusalem. But the people are going to various high places that they've set up. They're still worshiping Yahweh, but there's no central sanctuary yet. And, of course, in Deuteronomy, there's the law of the central sanctuary, which we'll get into when we uh, come to chapter 5 and the beginning of the temple, that we'll go back and look at what the Mosaic Law said, that there would be one central sanctuary envisioned for the people to worship, where the people would worship God, and this would bring unity to the nation, and as a preventative, it didn't work, but it would serve as a preventative for, for, for idolatry and the people fragmenting into, into different religions and different idolatrous religions. So the, the, the only hint of a negative is the fact that Solomon sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. He doesn't stop once the temple is built. Once there's a central sanctuary, he should stop all of the, and tear down all the high places in Israel, and he fails to do that. So that's your, your uh, foreshadowing of, of negative things to come. In this prayer, when Solomon requests uh, wisdom of God, he demonstrates 
humility, tremendous uh, humility throughout this uh, particular passage. He starts off in verse 7. He says, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out and come in. See, in verse 7, we recognize that... You know, my my computer was messing up on me this afternoon, so I've got a funny-looking Hebrew there. But it's uh, the verb is malak, which has to do with reigning. Malak is the word for king. Malak is the verb. And it's in the hyphial stem, which is causative stem. And so in English, we translate it, you have made uh, your servant king. And... Um, uh, the only word there that's in the, you have the word for king, that's all in the verb, every word but the servant. Servant is a separate word, avad. But uh, the idea there is that he's reflecting on what happened in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he recognizes that God's the one working behind the scenes. And, of course, we didn't see anybody running around going, what's God's will? Oh, Holy Spirit, speak to me, you know, like we do today with mysticism. What you had is people who went to the text, knew what God's promise was to David in the Davidic covenant and and made decisions on the basis of the revelation of God in in what would be Scripture, not on going to God to solve the problem. So it's another great passage on problem-solving and decision-making and anti-mysticism. And through this chapter, as we read, in verse 7, he prays to God. He recognizes uh, that he has he's just a little child. In other words, he's inexperienced. He doesn't know how to come out and go in. Verse 8, your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. And that reflects on the blessing of God on Israel since they have uh, come into the land. And he says in verse 9, Therefore give to your servant an understanding heart. An understanding heart. And the Hebrew word here, I don't think I put this on a slide. The Hebrew word here is the verb uh, shema. Uh, S-H-A-M-A. There we go. Shema, of course. Uh, and it means to listen. That's the root meaning of the word. And it has the idea, uh, give to your servant uh, a heart to listen to God. And in the Old Testament, they don't really distinguish between listening and obeying. So it becomes an idiom for obedience. Uh, give me an obedient heart is what he is praying. Uh, he's reflecting the same concept we have in James chapter 1, the second half of James 1 and James 2, from about James 1, 21 on down through the end of James 2, 26, is the idea that we must be hearers and doers of the word, that hearing the word means that we should apply the word uh, listening to the word implies obedience to the word. This is a, a concept that runs all the way through the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, most of which was written by by Solomon. And we and it expresses humility. He wants the Lord to give him a, a humble uh, heart, humble humility in his thinking. And he had a lot to say about this in the uh, Old Test Old Testament, the New Testament. We find First uh, Peter five five. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but give great gives grace to the humble. Now, if you look at that verse there at the end of verse five, that is a quotation from the Old Testament. It's a quotation from Proverbs. Proverbs three thirty four reads. Surely he scorns the scornful. And this is an interesting uh, idiom in the, in the Hebrew. The word for scorn and scornful, it has, the root is lilit, L-I-Y-L-I-Y-T, lilith. And it's an idiom. Actually, it means a screech owl. That's its literal meaning. But so it is, it, it has the idea of someone who's just screeching and making a lot of noise and, uh, by implication, somebody who's just a troublemaker because they're too arrogant to submit to authority. And so it's a very picturesque, uh, term here that God scorns, God screeches at the scornful. God screeches at the screechers. Uh, 
but he gives grace to the humble. And so Solomon is a picture of humility. So when you're teaching kids humility, you're teaching about humility from the, from the New Testament, you go back and you look at two key people. You look at Moses, because Moses is the most humble man, and humility means a submission to authority. And then you go to Solomon. He's totally submissive to God's authority. That's the essence of humility. That's why Peter picks up this as an illustration in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. He says, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. It's authority orientation. That's what humility is. Humility isn't thinking that you're some sort of doormat and everybody gets to use and abuse you. That's not humility. Humility is recognizing who's in your uh, authority chain of command and being obedient to them all the way up to God. Another verse in Proverbs that emphasizes humility is Proverbs 11:2. When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. Humility is the foundation for wisdom. Wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord means you recognize that God is the ultimate authority, and there's a sense of not just awe, not just respect, but a sense also of dread because of eventual accountability. Uh, we know that we're going to stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and that there is accountability there. And so there is a fearfulness that causes us to recognize that we are to uh, to live for God and to take his word very seriously and to not treat it lightly. Uh, Proverbs sixteen nineteen: better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil of the proud. Why? Because the uh, pr- proud will eventually fall. Uh, Proverbs 29, uh, 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. There, the, there is glory from God for those who are truly uh, humble. This is what we see in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus Christ humbled himself. How? By being obedient. There you get that authority thing again. Uh, by being obedient to the death of the cross. See, you, you, you have this whole authority thing that runs all the way through the scriptures, and it, it, it connects with that legality thing. Because when you have a legal structure, there is authority, and under the authority of law, there must be obedience. And when there is disobedience, then you have chaos and fragmentation. And even in a fallen world, when an authority figure is not making the best decisions, it doesn't invalidate the commands. Because once you start establishing a precedent in your own soul of deciding whether or not you're going to obey the authorities over you, then what you've done is you've developed an arrogant soul. And that's going to work itself out eventually in your life. And the scriptures are very clear that uh, we're to obey the authorities that God establishes over us unless those authorities start to conflict. And then you see when uh, uh, God commands us to witness and we have a, a state like uh, the State, the, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 telling Peter and John that they can't preach the gospel anymore. When you have that conflict in authorities, well, you, you always obey God over human authorities. So the whole theme of humility runs through here, and as a result, God uh, grants him much more than he requests. In verse 11, God said, because you've not, because you've asked this thing, not asked for long life. You haven't had a selfish motive. You haven't asked for long life, for health, for riches, or for your enemies, but you have asked for understanding to discern justice. If he had a vindictive heart like most people think 1 Kings 2 exemplifies, then he would have asked God for little retribution on his enemies. But that's not his mentality. We don't see that in the young Solomon at all. So in verse 12, God says, I'm going to give you a wise an understanding heart. And the word for wisdom is hakam. Uh, it's related to chachmah, which I mentioned, chachmah, which I mentioned last time. But hakam is an adjective that means wise, someone who's skilled and experienced. And the other word that we have here is the word bin, uh, B-I-N, bin, which means to discern, to be able to cons- intelligently consider between options 
and choose a wise course of action. So God grants this to Solomon, and as a result, we saw last time in verse 15, Solomon comes out and uh, goes to the uh, Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem and offers up burnt offerings and uh, peace offerings in gratitude for what God has done. And then we're going to get two examples of Solomon's wisdom. The first example is a story that's usually told in Sunday school about Solomon's wisdom, and they usually uh, modify this quite a bit because we're talking about a couple of prostitutes here. and Nobody wants to get some third-grade kid that want to know what a prostitute is or try to explain it to a third-grade kid, so they usually explain it as women. But the text is very clear in verse 16. Now, two women, uh, prostitutes, appositionally, and this is the standard word for prostitutes, these two prostitutes come to, um, to the king. For because there's a dispute between them, the Hebrew word for prostitute is uh, zonah, which is tends to stand for an adulterous woman or a or a prostitute. And so one woman says that uh, explains the situation. Now she seems to be the initiator here. Now it's important to note this that the woman who's initiating them is going is the woman who's the the mother of the child. It shows that her care for the child from the very beginning. So Solomon sort of has a hint as to who the mother might be from the very beginning. One woman says, O oh Lord, this woman I dwell in the same house. I gave birth while she was in the house, and it happened the third day after I gave birth that she gave birth. And so there's two babies in the house, and her baby dies in the middle of the night. And so she got up in the middle of the night, and she switched babies on me. And so the next morning when I woke up, I... My baby was dead. But once I thought about it, she says in verse 21, and I examined him, I realized that wasn't my son whom I had given birth to and that the other woman had uh, switched babies on me. And the other woman now disputes it. And she uh, says that the living one is her son. And so Solomon has to decide between them. So he is uh, very thoughtful, and he thinks about what's going on here. He realizes there's an act of criminality here because the second woman who substitutes the kid is guilty of kidnapping, according to Deuteronomy 24-7. And if the first woman, the one who's bringing the case to court, if she's guilty, then she is guilty of being a false witness, according to Deuteronomy 19, 16 to 19. So this fits the role of a just king. And a just king in the scripture is going to rule by wisdom, and wisdom only comes, only comes from God. And so there's, there's a lot going on in this episode other than just what's on the, on the surface. We've got, had a very private communication, as I pointed out last time, between God and Solomon. When Solomon goes to Gibeon, uh, God appears to him in a dream. It's private. It's not subjective. Subjective has to do with the fact that it, it's being influenced by one's own personal decisions, and it's not uh, doesn't have any genuine reality or objectivity. This is a private encounter. It is very objective, but it is private. Nobody else is there. Nobody else hears what God says or sees God speaking to uh, Solomon in a dream. And one of the things you see all the way down through the through the Scripture, as you go through uh, episodes in the Judges, episodes in Solomon, I mean in Samuel, uh, you see that when God does something in private, He validates it in public. When the angel of the Lord appeared to that uh, cowering, uh, uh, fearful Gideon, and sarcastically called him a mighty warrior in Judges chapter 6 because he's hiding out in the threshing floor so the Midianites don't find him. Uh, When God is speaking to Gideon and commissions him to lead an army against the Midianites, who's, who's a witness? Who's there to watch that? No one. Totally private. Not any different from God speaking to Gideon in a dream or any other way. 
except that it wasn't in a dream. It was external, and if somebody had been there, they could have witnessed it. And what happens? What's the first thing that happens? After after the angel of the Lord leaves, um, and um, Gideon has uh, made a sacrifice to the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord then rises up in the smoke. The next thing that happens is Gideon goes out and he tears down the altar to Baal that that his uh, a father has constructed, and so this is an external validation. Then you have the the fact that he wins the battle. That's another external uh, validation. So you have the fact that that God confirms in public what he does in private, all the way through the scriptures. So that doesn't give anybody the right to come out and say, "Well, God spoke to me." Because in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, God makes it very clear that if someone says, God said, then you have a test that you have to uh, uh, use to validate that claim. And if God has truly spoken to them, it's going to follow certain parameters. And if those, those uh, criteria aren't met, then God did not speak to them. And so all the way through the scriptures, you have it clear that God doesn't speak to people subjectively and just leave them there privately, just, you know, just hanging out there to walk around and say, well, God told me to do X, Y, and Z. No, or the Holy Spirit told me. And you hear that from people today. Well, the Holy Spirit moved me to do that. Well, how do you know it was the Holy Spirit? How do you know it just wasn't the dynamic of doctrine in your own in your own soul. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit doesn't do it because as, as, as 1 Kings points out, what's happening behind the scenes covertly in 1, uh, 1 Kings is that God is working through Nathan and through Bathsheba and then through David to bring about the security of the transition from David to, to Solomon. But it's done in a covert way through his sovereignty and not overtly. David and Nathan and Bathsheba aren't saying that, well, God spoke to me and told me to do this, and uh, and using this kind of Holy Ghost, uh, super spiritual language on everybody, making it sound like they've got a fast track to God that nobody else has. And so that's a problem that we have today, and every now and then I just have to, you know, take out a sledgehammer and, hit that peg again, make sure everybody understands uh, that we can't go down the route of mysticism. In fact, I was reading a statement uh, recently by a man named Leonard Sweet, who's one of the major intellectual influences on what's called the emergent church movement, and he's, he talks about how mysticism has to move back to center stage. And that is what's been happening in evangelicalism for the last 20 years. And you can, as I continually point out, you can go down to Christian bookstores and see all kinds of books uh, related to Christian mysticism, medieval mysticism, St. John of the Cross, Teresa of of Avila, Thomas Merton's a modern one, and these people are being promoted over, over and over again. So we have to always have our guard up against mysticism. There's no such thing as Christian mysticism. Uh, there may be things mysterious that we don't understand about the Bible, but that's not the same as, as mysticism. So Solomon has to make a decision because he knows the law. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that one of the things the king was supposed to do was to make out a handwritten copy of the law every day. Priests were supposed to come in and be a witness to this, that he is making his own copy. So he's familiar with what the Mosaic qualifications are for being a king, and he is to rule justly and according to wisdom. And so he understands the issues that are going on here, and he has great wisdom. This is a supernatural gift that God has given him. And in verse 23, we see a solution. Uh, he says, well, on the one hand, we have one woman who says this is her son. And the, on the other hand, we have a, the other woman saying that, no, it's really her son. So we have to decide who the real mother is. And he recognizes that the genuine mother 
is going to have a level of care and love and compassion for the child that the other one does not have. And any woman who would substitute a dead baby for a live baby has no love or compassion, so he's going to devise a test that goes right to the heart of the issue. And he says, bring me a sword. And they bring him a sword, and he's going to slice uh, the baby in two and give half to one and half to the other, which seems sort of cruel, but he's not actually going to do that. He's just setting up a circumstance to um, expose the uh, one who's making the false claim. And immediately the woman whose son was living spoke to the king and said, um, Lord, give her the living child and don't kill him. So he, Solomon must have been a good actor because he was stern enough and convincing enough to where the they didn't think he was joking. They felt like he was actually going to cut that baby in two. So the true mother offers the child to the other one rather than cause his, his death. And we see his response in verse 27. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him, for she is his mother. And all Israel, here's the point, all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king. This is the same word, Yarev, which is used of fearing the Lord. It is a sign of respect and awe because they recognize in an age when you don't have you know, DNA and fingerprints and birth records and all these other things, that this showed tremendous insight on the part of the king into human behavior and his ability to uh, solve the situation. And they see in this that this is a sign of God's blessing and the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. And this, again, brings out the whole point that he is functioning as a godly king according to the uh, guidelines of the Mosaic Law. God has validated his kingship. God has established his kingdom. He didn't do it through vengeance. He didn't do it by carrying out some sort of vendetta against his father's enemies. God has validated his, his reign, and God is going to... Uh, God is going to bless him. Now, the next example that we have of his wisdom is in the organization of the kingdom in chapter 4, verses 1 through 19. Now, this is one of those sections where if you're reading through your Bible on a regular basis, you come to a list like this and you sort of skip through it. You just let your eyes run down the page. I don't know what you, I don't know what you do. And you run through here and you recognize, oh, there's Ben-Hur. Oh, well, it doesn't say anything about Ben-Hur. One of this is a... Been heard that uh, Lou Wallace based the, that's where he got the name anyway, was out of this, this list. And um, it describes his administration, and it begins by giving us a list of his, what we would call the king's cabinet, his, the Brits would call it his privy council. The ten chief officers he sets up around whom he's going to establish his kingdom, and these Ten princes are set up in uh, verses 2 uh, through 6. These were his officials, Azariah the son of Zadok. So this, of course, tells you, you know, that Zadok's a high priest. And so now his son, actually, according to First uh, Chronicles 5, 34 and 35, he's probably the grandson of Zadok, the son of Achamaz. And see, in a genealogy of this type where there's no numbers, no ages, no date of birth, date of death. Uh, the son of can mean grandson. It's marking descent. It's not marking specific chronology. So he is uh, becomes the uh, set up as the high priest who will succeed Zadok. And verse 3, we have the mention of two names, uh, Elihoreph and Ahijah. The sons of Shisha, these are scribes. These are, they function as secretaries, scribes. We would relate them to sort of, uh, uh Secretary of State and the, uh, Foreign Affairs Desk. Uh, the Brits would have the Home Office and the Foreign, uh, Foreign Secretary. So this is, uh, how they operate. One takes care of the affairs of the homeland. The other takes care of things related to foreign countries. And then in verse 4, we have Benaiah, who we're familiar with, the son of Jehoiada. He's the commander in, 
Uh, I skipped one in the second part of chapter 3. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, the recorder. And uh, he is uh, also set up as he's set up as the recorder. He is the one who is keeping all of the records, all of the legal records, and making sure that all of the legal documents are properly uh, properly recorded and maintaining all of those all of those records. Uh, verse four, Benaiah, who we've already seen, uh, Benaiah, Zadok, and uh, Abiathar. Uh, Benaiah is the commander in chief over the army. Uh, the word for army is Sabah, which is uh, Sabat, which is the same word that they use today for the um, IDF, for the Israeli Defense Force. That word for force is really uh, Sabaot, which is uh, the armies for the defense of Israel. Then we have, um, uh, so uh, Zadok and Abiathar are priests. Zadok, by this time, there was an age qualification. He's over 50 now. He is retired. And so he and Abiathar are serving as priests, whereas so his son or grandson, Azariah, is serving as the high priest. Then in, uh, we have, in verse 5, Azariah, the son of Nathan. Nathan was the prophet, is set up over the officers. And so he is uh, a chief minister in the cabinet to uh, organize things. And Zabud, the, his brother, uh, the, another son of Nathan, is a priest and is the uh, king's friend. This would be like the chief of staff. He's, he uh, organizes his daily calendar and takes care of his day-to-day uh, affairs. And then in verse 6, we have Ahizar. Uh, he's in charge of the palace and the household. And Adoniram, the son of Avda, is set up over the labor force. So he's the labor secretary. And there's these huge construction projects with the palace and the temple that are carried out during uh, Solomon's reign. And he would be in charge of all of that. So that's the first level of organization that he establishes. And it shows the degree of complexity in the kingdom. That's what you should be getting from this, is that the kingdom of David is now very large. Uh, back in chapter 3, when uh, Solomon is talking to God, he says the people are like the, the sand of the seashore. They're uh, countless now. That, that's a fulfillment of Abraham's, of God's promise to Abraham that the descendants of his descendants would be uh, countless like the stars in the sky. And so it's a complex kingdom, and it has to be organized and it has to be well run. And so that's the impression that you get from this is that to set up all this organization, uh, man needs to have skill and wisdom in leadership. And so he sets up this cabinet, and then underneath that he has another set of governors. He divides the land into 12 uh, 12 uh, divisions, 12 regions. These are not identical with the 12 tribes, which is going to cause some, uh, eventually cause uh, some problems. So he sets up these 12 officers over all of Israel, and they are in charge of taxes. And taxes are never pleasant, but in a growth economy, when you're building, you're growing, there's a tremendous amount of trade, ta- and, and uh, people are becoming more and more prosperous, then the taxes don't appear to be as onerous and burdensome. What happens by the end of his reign is that the taxes have continued to grow, the economy's not growing anymore because God's not blessing them because they're going into apostasy. And so the economy begins to shrink and the taxes have become onerous, and this is what leads to eventually to the split of the kingdoms. There's a lot to learn there and a lot to develop in terms of understanding economics and the role of government in relationship uh, to taxation. And that taxation can lead to, uh, it's, it's not their money, it's our money. And so there's certain, there's a legitimacy to taxation, which is what Jesus affirms when he's asked about the tax to Caesar and he look, picks up a coin and says, whose image is on this? Well, it's Caesar's. Well, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. There is a, there's a legitimacy to taxation from government, but 
uh, that taxation needs to be wise and it does not need to be uh, a burden to the people. That happens when you have uh, a tyranny. So these 12 districts are laid out in verses 8 down through 19, and I'm not going to read through the list, uh, but the summation of the list is that these districts are each responsible for supporting the king's household one month out of the year. They're going to provide grain. They're going to provide cattle and sheep and food, wine, all of these things uh, for one month out of the year. Uh, two of his officers that he appoints are his sons-in-law. So this is not necessarily something early. If he's young, he doesn't have sons-in-law yet, but he will uh, eventually. He gives some men more territory than others. He rewards his friends, but he makes sure that all of these administrators are very capable men. They can carry out the job. He uh, administers the land all the way the borders are given, and the borders go all the way from Egypt up to the Euphrates, covering much of what is in modern-day Syria. I had a lot of trouble, as I said earlier, I had trouble with my computer today, and I kept trying to get that map into the PowerPoint tonight, and it just wouldn't stay there. So I don't know what the problem was. But uh, it almost covers the boundaries of the land that are given to Abraham. But the Jews don't settle the whole land. It comes under, part of that territory is simply under tribute to him. They've conquered it, uh, but it's not fully inhabited and settled by Israel. So the Abrahamic covenant isn't, uh, isn't fulfilled yet. Uh, the one mistake that he makes that's a foreboding thing is that he shows favoritism to his own tribe, to the tribe of Judah. Everybody else gets taxed, but Judah doesn't get taxed. So how would you feel about that? Well, see, that's what eventually leads to this division uh, that happens between the ten northern tribes and Judah. Basically, Benjamin is sort of assimilated into Judah by by this particular time. So the domain has grown, and in verse 20, we come to the last part, which begins to summarize what happens under under Solomon? Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea and multitude eating and drinking and rejoicing. God is prospering them and blessing them because they are oriented to him. Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river, that's the river of Egypt, same river that God promised Abraham as a boundary, to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt, that's down to the south-southeast. Uh, excuse me, from the river is not the river of Egypt. The river there is the river Euphrates. starts in the uh, what would be the northeast and goes, sweeps down to the southwest. From the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. See, it's tribute. It's not full uh, control. It's not fully inhabited by, by Israel. And then we have a description of how much it cost to run Solomon's household. And some people suggest that he had between 2,000 and 3,500 people that he was supporting just within uh, the palace. He was developing a bloated bureaucracy, which is always a burden on any culture. And in verse 22, it says Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour. 30 cores would be roughly equivalent to 185 bushels. Uh, 185 bushels of flour a day, 60 cores of meal a day would be 375 uh, bushels a day. Uh, 30 head of cattle a day. That's a lot of steak. That's a lot of barbecue. Um, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. So there's a lot of folks eating well in the palace. So verse 24, he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, that's Euphrates, from Tipsa, that's in the far north in Syria, even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river. So see, there's still kings over the Syrians, kings over these uh, other smaller uh, ethnic groups, but they are paying tribute to Solomon. It's not a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant yet. Verse 25, Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba. Dan is up to the north. Dan is, I think I have a map here, Dan is 
up just to the north of the Sea of Galilee, about maybe about 40 miles. Uh, it's up in the area uh, just on the shoulder of Mount Hermon. And then uh, Beersheba is off the map. It's about 30 miles south of Hebron. Hebron is right down here. Right in the middle on the bottom of the map is Hebron, and Beersheba is about 30 or 40 miles south of Hebron. So this is a standard description to cover the scope of the land. It's like night and day, uh, hot and cold, from Dan to Beersheba, from the far north to the south. This is the land of Israel. And then in verse 26, uh, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses. This is probably a copyist error. Uh, Chronicles indicates that it's 4,000. And um, uh, Second Chronicles uh, 1.14 indicates, I believe, that that's only, or excuse me, Second Chronicles 9.25, that there's 4,000 uh, stalls for horses and 12,000 horsemen. And you go to Megiddo, you go to Gezer, you go to Hatzor. These are some of the cities where he established his chariot corps, and you can see the remains today of, of those uh, particular stalls. So it shows how he's building his army, and this was one of the warnings back in Deuteronomy, uh, warning against the king that he will multiply his army and Samuel also warned against that. So then we come down to uh, summary. In verse 27, these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon for all who came to King Solomon's table. No lack in their supply. They also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. Summation, verse 29, and God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding. And largeness of heart, he's generous, grace-oriented, like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Now think about that. The Bible presents Solomon in this verse as a combination of Leonardo da Vinci, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Edison, George Washington, um, uh, all rolled up into one. There was no one like him in the ancient world ever. He was so far advanced above everybody. He's an inventor. He is a scientist. He's a wise ruler. He's just. He's all of these things. And he surpasses everybody. He's wiser than all men. Then they mention in verse 31 a bunch of people we never heard of. Ethan the Ezrahide, Heman, Chalcol, Darda, the sons of Mahal's fame was in all the surrounding nations. People know about him all throughout the ancient world. He is uh, more famous than anyone. Uh, verse 32, he spoke 3,000 Proverbs. Now, that's not what we have in Proverbs. We're missing most of them. But he spoke 3,000 Proverbs. Uh, and for every, uh, the rabbi said that for every law of the sages, he had 1,000. He wrote 1,005 uh, uh, reasons for each law, which is probably very imaginative on their part. But he also writes 8,005 songs, and the only one we have is the Song of Solomon. And I think there's one, one psalm, psalm, no, two psalms, Psalm 72 and 27. That's it. But Scripture says he wrote 8,005 songs, but the only ones we have left are Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon was written to be sung. That's why it's called a song. It was like a musical. Um, the breadth of his knowledge is described in verse 33. He spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, which is one of the largest in the area, uh, even to the hyssop the, uh, that springs out of the wall. This is one of the smallest plants. So it's saying he knew everything from the smallest plants to the largest uh, plants. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. So he's like Theodore Roosevelt, as you ever read about him from a young boy. He's keeping uh, journals of every animal that he runs across, every insect, every every bird, every every creature he's cataloging it. And this is the kind of mind that, that Solomon had. Uh, Verse 34, men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard the wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. 
This is a fabulous kingdom. For its era, it had more, it had probably had a greater technology. It had an expanding economy. It had a king who was uh, more knowledgeable and more inventive than any ruler on the earth. And people, this was the, this was as close to the idea that God had for the kingdom of Israel ever in the Old Testament is that if they would follow him, then God would bless them so magnificently that everybody on the earth would come to Israel for knowledge and they would hear the gospel and hear about God. That was God's missionary plan in the Old Testament. But they failed. And Solomon, who almost reaches the pinnacle, fails. And he's, his pride gets in the way and he makes uh, starts to turn against God. But at this stage... He is still positive. So we'll come back next time. We'll begin to get into a study of the temple, its construction, and all the different facets of it. And we'll probably summarize most of that because it's, it's like reading a blueprint. And uh, <clears throat> so we don't want everybody just sleeping through class. Okay. Father, thank you for this time to study your word this evening and uh, just to be impressed by how gracious you were to Solomon and that you are the same God for us and you have given us uh, so much wisdom in the scriptures and it's ours for the asking seeking the scriptures you've given us the holy spirit so that we can have the same kind of wisdom that solomon had but it takes study submission to you uh, orienting to your grace orienting to your word making it our number one priority father we pray that you challenge us with these things we pray in christ's name amen